So have you ever ordered the flounder? When I was a kid, we ever went to the seafood restaurant, I remember my dad was not interested in the fish unless it was flounder. He just wanted the flounder. That was the only kind of fish that he wanted to eat. You know, the flounder is a very interesting fish. It's a, it's a very flat fish, and as it becomes an adult, it has two eyes on the same side of its head, meaning that it has two eyes on one side of its flat body. Now, that sounds kind of weird at first light, but what it's able to do with those two eyes is, is pretty amazing. You see, the way it protects itself is it goes and lies down on the ocean floor on one of those flat sides, and it camouflages itself with what's around it. So you can't really see it. And then the two eyes are sticking up through all that camouflage, watching what's really going on. It's pretty amazing when you think about this as a protective measure and how it's designed. It's, it's kind of fascinating. What may not be as fascinating to you, unless you love Major League Baseball, is that this week the Miami Marlins hired a new manager. Part of the reason they hired a new manager is because the owner of the team did not feel like that the previous manager was doing the job that he should be doing. This is what the owner, Jeffrey Loria, said this week. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see the team wasn't performing. Everybody in baseball can see it. A lot of players lost accountability and structure was lacking. We're supposed to be the fish, the marlins. We shouldn't be the flounders. A marlin isn't a flounder. We've got to get it going. Yes, marlins and flounders are two different fish. I think most of us know that. But there's a little double meaning going on here, I believe. See, there's a, a verb for flounder. This verb popped up somewhere in the late 1500s. It's believed that it's a combination of, of one of two combinations of words. Either this combination, flounce and founder, or the combination of blunder and founder. Flounce, meaning waving your body and your arms and flailing all over the place. Blunder, meaning making a mistake. And founder, meaning causing something to sink, something that's, that's going to sink. So if we were to define flounder, pulling all that together, we might say that, that floundering is when you're flailing your body or your attitudes or your emotions all over the place in such a way that you're making mistakes that eventually, in one way or the other, are going to sink you. We don't want to be flounders. You see, what this owner of this baseball team is saying is he wants his team to be marlins instead of flounders. He doesn't want them to be making tons of, of arrogant, ignorant, unnecessary mistakes. He doesn't want them to be all over the place, flailing everywhere with their attitudes and their behavior and what they do on the field or even off the field. In other words, he's looking for his players not to sink the season. Christians are not supposed to be flounders. We are not supposed to be the kind of people who are all over the place, flailing every which way direction that you could possibly imagine. We're not supposed to have lives that are marked with arrogant or ignorant or unnecessary sin. We're not perfect, but we're just talking about constant expressions of ignorance and unnecessary mistakes. We're not supposed to be the kind of people that are all over the place all the time with all of our emotions and all of our attitudes and all of our behavior. And we're not supposed to be living as if our faith is a sinking ship. 
This is especially true when it comes to church leaders. Pastors and elders and overseers and deacons and Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, children's workers, youth workers, committee members, just about anybody would have any position of leadership in any way, shape, or form in the church should not be a flounder. Paul was writing a letter to his friend Titus. He was trying to help Titus and people just like me and you to navigate through a culture that's full of immorality and sin. You see, the culture when Titus lived is no different than the culture that we live now. A little different, different products maybe, different forms, different words, different ideas, but, but still sin and still immorality. And Paul in his letter writes that one of the best navigation tools that we can have for sin and morality in our culture is to have good church leaders. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. Paul writes, Namely, if any man is above reproach. Now what Paul's doing here is he was giving us some, some characteristics of what an elder should look like. So what is an elder? Well, I'm going to use some words interchangeably today. Pastor, elder, and overseer. They're, they're kind of all the same words. Technically, in our church, I am the only elder. Um, and I'll just let you know, I don't like that. <laughs> I want that to change. I am praying that that would change. At my in-law's church, they have compensated elders and non-compensated elders. They have pastors who are paid to be pastors, and then they have other pastors who are just lay leaders in the church, but they are true leaders in the life of the church. You know, on our hierarchy chart, it says Jesus and then pastor. Man, that makes me nervous. <laughs> you know? I want somebody else's name up there with mine. Uh, the picture, though, is that when we see healthy, growing churches in the New Testament, there's not one guy. There, there never is. In fact, in the New Testament, the health of the church is that there was more than, than one elder. There was, there was more than, than one leader. There were a group of leaders that understood the gospel and loved the gospel and loved the church. So, Technically speaking, I'm the only elder here, but what I hope is that we will see that a bigger picture of what Paul is communicating goes beyond the pulpit, and it goes beyond the pastor, and it goes beyond just any one person, but it's something that spreads across to every single person in this room, regardless of your age or your background. So Paul begins by saying this, namely, in other words, Here's the basics. You know, here are the minimum requirements. When you're looking, these are the things that kind of have to be there. Now, some of these things could be a sermon all by themselves. We're not going to do that. We're hopefully just going to let them be simple and straightforward this morning. And one of the simple, straightforward things is that throughout the Bible, when it comes to the primary leadership in the church, God has designed through the Scriptures for men to be those leaders. There are lots of areas in the church, in the community, in the home, and lots of areas of life where women can lead. But when it comes to looking through the whole of the Bible, the primary leaders in the church, the primary leaders in the home are supposed to be the men. The men are supposed to lead the way. Now, what kind of men are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, Paul says, men above reproach. What does that mean? Does that mean you have to be perfect and you can't ever do anything wrong? If so, y'all are going to have to get a new pastor starting today. No, it's not about being perfect. It's not about 
never do anything wrong or never making a mistake. The language here means that some folks can't line up outside the church and come into the congregation and approach us and say, you know what, that guy, he's a rascal. Man, you, you don't want that guy out there. He, he's a real rascal. I can tell you some things that he does at work. I can tell you some things that he does on the golf course. I can tell you some things that he does in other places. Yeah, you, you don't want him up there. Or it means that somebody can bring something up from your life that at the very least might cause distraction from your ability to serve and, and lead in the church. Basically what it means is this, is that the people that around your life, at home, at work, at school, at the restaurant, at the ballpark, wherever it is, they would say that you're, generally speaking, the same guy all the time. And that the same guy that you are is a guy who is working hard to love and follow Jesus Christ. In other words, if somebody were to find out, somebody who normally is around you, if they were to find out that you are a church leader, they would not be shocked. We're not talking about perfection, but we're also not talking about being phony. We're not talking about perfection, but we're not even talking about 50-50 or 80-20. We are talking about committing your life, all of your life, to striving toward honoring Jesus and loving Jesus. Not partially, but to the best of your ability with everything that you have. Now, does that sound like something that only church leaders should have? Should only church leaders be striving to honor and follow Jesus with everything that we have? Sounds like something all of us as Christians should be doing. What else does Paul say? Look back at verse 6. The husband of one wife. The meaning here in the original language is a one-woman man. What does that mean? Well, let's answer it by asking some questions. Could a single man be a pastor, elder, or overseer? Sure. If Paul meant only married people, then he would be saying that Jesus could not be an elder in the church. Or that Paul could not be an elder in the church. He's not saying that. Could a man who's been widowed and never been married again, could he be an elder, a pastor, an overseer? Sure. Could a man who's been widowed and be married again, could he be a pastor, an elder, an overseer? Sure. Could a divorced man be a pastor or elder or overseer? Maybe. It's a strong maybe, too. Because of the very nature of the gospel, we sang just a minute ago, because the gospel will prevail. The gospel is the greatest news in the world. And because of the very nature of the gospel, we would have to say nothing is impossible because of what Jesus can do in someone's life. But it would be very difficult, I believe, for a divorced man to be a pastor, elder, and overseer. Not impossible, but difficult because of the issue of being above reproach. You see, there may be some issues with a previous wife or previous children or, or previous things in life that, that might carry over. Maybe not terrible things, but things that at the very least could be a distraction to them being able to be one of the primary overseers in the gospel ministry of the local church. Could someone who's only been married one time to one woman for five years or, or 25 years or 50 years be considered to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer? Sure. Could someone who's only been married one time to one woman for five years or 25 years or 50 years but is way too flirty with waitresses and stares way too long at other women in the grocery store be a pastor, elder, overseer? No, probably not. See, that's what Paul is getting at here. 
See, this is one of those times where I hope you picked up on the word that I used, could. <laughs> I used could with every single one of those. See, there's, there's not this one rule that the Bible gives us. So we take the whole of the Bible, and we take the whole of the Bible, and we put the whole of the Bible on the whole situation of the man when it comes to church leadership. And the whole situation that Paul is giving here is that we're talking about heart issues. Listen, there are people who aren't even Christians who've only been married to one woman their whole life. And they're not supposed to be church leaders. So the issue Paul is talking about is not the legal outward expression of marriage. He's talking about the inward expression of purity. You see, lust is something that is common to all men. And in some ways, it's common to all people, depending on what category of lust you're talking about. But what Paul seems to be addressing here is not common lust. He seems to be saying, hey, Titus, when you go looking for guys to be leaders in the church, you need to find out, do they have common lust? Are they fighting against common lust? Or do they have commanding lust? Is their whole life defined by lust? Is their whole life defined by an addiction to impurity instead of an addiction to purity? Now, again, when you think through that, does that sound like something that only church leaders need? Only church leaders should be fighting to love the Lord their God with all their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength? Only church leaders? Or is that something we all should be doing? Only church leaders should be striving to have a, a pure heart and a pure mind that, that loves God's Word and loves applying the Word? Or is that something that we all as Christians should be doing? Again, something that we all should be doing seems pretty clear. What else does Paul say? Look back at verse 6. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The feel of the language here is not just making sure your kids make a profession of faith and get baptized. Nor does it really mean that your kids grow up and, and move out on their own and they still go to church. I think both of those apply. I would say this. In, in five or six years, if all four of my kids hate God and hate the church and are engaged in rebellious immorality or are pretty outspoken with religious apathy, I would probably wonder if I really need to be your pastor. Why? Well, because if all of my children reject the gospel, then it sure seems as if I gave the false version of Jesus in my home. Hopefully I would not do that. You know, this week Ireland voted to approve same-sex marriage I read an interesting article this morning and a quote from a Catholic priest who said that when he looked at the demographics of the voting, the age of the voters was young. And he said, in fact, if you really begin to look at it, these were the kids that have just spent the last 12 years in our Catholic churches and our Catholic schools. And basically the point he was making was this. I wonder were we clear on what we believe about God? It's a good challenge, right? Are we being clear about what we believe about God? We had graduate recognition last Sunday. Are our graduates graduating from church and leaving church? Or have we communicated the gospel in such a way that they love God, they love Jesus, and they love to stay in church? The picture that Paul is painting here is not necessarily that our kids grow up and follow Jesus, although we want that. It's not really that our kids make a profession of faith and get baptized, although we want that. The picture that Paul gives here is this. 
do your kids, generally speaking, obey while they're still living in your home? Now, there's always rebellion. All of us were rebellious against our parents in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not wildly, maybe mildly. Maybe you just refuse to take out the trash or whatever it may be. But the picture here is that when it comes to the general house rules, when it comes to what mom and dad generally ask, that all the kids in the home say, no way, we're not doing that. You can forget it. Open rebellion. What Paul is saying is if that's happening, at the very least, it will be difficult for that man to lead the church. Again, this is coulds. These are not uh, black and white, etched in stone. These are, hey, here's the gospel. Let's take the gospel and put it into this person's life and see what God is doing. Now again, does that sound like something only church leaders should have? Only church leaders should be promoting uh, a a non-rebellious, non-rude honoring of legitimate authority. Only church leaders are supposed to be honoring authority and encouraging others to honor authority? Or is that something that we all should be doing as Christians? What else does Paul say? Look at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Above reproach, again, second time. Paul must think this is kind of important. Why does he think it's important? Well, he thinks it's important because the overseer is a steward of God, a servant of God, an ambassador of God. I saw an advertisement recently that said this, real heroes don't have a name on the back of their jersey. They have their country's flag on the arm of a uniform. (laughs) That's good. See, when you think about it, an overseer in the life of the church is, is wearing a uniform and the flag of the kingdom of heaven is on his sleeve, but his name is also on the back of his uniform. And so the flag and the name need to match. Not perfectly, because nobody can do that, but there there needs to be some consistency between the two. You can't wave the flag and then your name be something completely different. So how would we know if things match up? Well, Paul helps us out. He gives us some things to look for. Look back at verse 7. He needs to not be self-willed and not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Let's look at those really quickly, just one by one. Not self-willed. In other words, his goal is not for his opinion to be the only opinion. The goal is not for his idea for what the church should do to definitely be God's idea for what the church should do. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a, a new member of this church, or if you've been a member of this church for 60 years, the Bible has a pretty simple motto for church membership. And the motto goes something like this. I am not here to get my way. That's what it means to be a member of the church of God. But rather, I am here to make a big deal out of Jesus. I am here to honor Jesus and love Jesus because as a Christian, I'm saying that Jesus is the most important reality in the universe. So his fame is always more important than mine. And people finding him is the greatest joy of my life. That's what it means to be a member of a church. And it definitely is what it means to be a leader of the church, not, self, not self-willed. Next, he says, not quick-tempered. Doesn't have a short fuse. He's not prone to get picky and mad and aggravated about every little thing that goes on in the church. In fact, the only time you even see him aggravated is when God is being dishonored. 
when someone's personal preference is being put in front of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only time you ever see him get a little bit aggravated. I read a quote this week that said, when you look at Jesus, rarely was Jesus' response anger. Where was it anger? It was anger inside the church. (laughs) That's when he got angry. But the rest of the time, Jesus didn't get angry about every little thing. And the one time that his anger was pretty clear was when God was being dishonored. That's what we should see in those that lead the church. Next, he says, not addicted to wine. Boy, I've said before, the Apostle Paul would have helped a lot of Southern Baptist preachers if he would have just said, don't ever drink anything anytime. But he didn't say that. But what he says is actually a little more powerful than that. He says, don't worship wine. That's really what he's getting at here. He's saying that that addiction, the very use of the word, is a word that says, I'm going to worship this more than I worship Jesus Christ. So don't get hung up on the wine. Because you know what? We can worship a lot of things, right? We can worship wine and beer and strong drink. We can worship prescription drugs. We can worship gossip. We can worship pornography. We can worship money. There's a lot of things that we can worship. The picture that Paul is painting here is this. Do not put a person into leadership who decides that there's other things that should be boasted about before Jesus. Don't put anyone in leadership that can't give something up if it distracts that person from Jesus or distracts somebody else from Jesus. In other words, what he says is this. Be careful in this culture. In this culture, on the island of Crete, there were churches that the very nature of the religion was to get drunk during the service. That was what it was like with some of these weird cults on the island of Crete. And so Paul's saying, look, when you pick leaders, you need to be sure that you have some men focused on Jesus. Not full of idols. Not addicted to anything. Particularly, he says, wine here. But men who are focused on making much of Christ. Men who behave in a way that is consistent with how Jesus behaved, not the opposite of how Jesus behaved. Next, he says, not pugnacious. (laughs) Really, just use that word today. You know, just for me, pugnacious. Just use it casually tomorrow if you're cooking out. Yeah, yeah, that guy, he's pugnacious. Just to see if people ask what it means. Pugnacious means that if you're going to be a leader in the church, you can't be a bully. Keep going around slapping people upside the head or punching them in the face when you don't get your way. That's kind of not how it's supposed to go. But you know, you don't have to slap people in the head and punch them in the face to be a bully, right? Let me see if I can put it another way. Don't be the person in the life of the church that's always out in the hallway or in the parking lot or on the phone whining, complaining, and passing out tickets for a guilt trip just to try to get your way. See, that is a form of, of bullying. See, the whole, the whole nature of what it means to be a bully is you're fighting to get your way. The only thing we should be fighting for is the gospel. And we don't have to fight for the gospel. All we do, according to the Old Testament, is we lift Jesus up. And the gospel does its own work. Paul says we don't need to be a bully. He also says we don't need to be fond of sordid gain. This means that he avoids greed, especially greed of money, especially greed of money in the church. He's not always trying to play at an angle, trying to get his way, or especially trying to gain financially from the church. 
Now, most of the time when we think about something like this, what do we think of? Uh, we think of the, the televangelist out there, you know, the guys with the multi-million dollar homes and the, you know, personal submarines and, you know, all these kind of things, you know. That plays in. I would say that's part of what's going on here. But there's a little deeper meaning here. The idea is that it's any kind of self-centered pursuit of gain. For instance, maybe you're a pastor, an elder, an overseer who refuses to listen to anyone else's advice because, after all, the chart says Jesus, then pastor. Hey, man, nobody can question me. That would be a, a form of, of sordid gain. Or maybe a, a church member who gets mad about something that didn't happen their way, and so this, they start designating their tithe to a certain account as a, as a way of protesting. That's, that's a form of sordid gain. Or a musician who stands up Sunday after Sunday and says, Oh, it's all about Jesus. But man, the more they sing, it is all about them. You know what I mean? We see this, and we've seen this in our lifetime. There are all kinds of expressions of sordid gain. All types of expressions of this is primarily about me, not primarily about Jesus. Those are the kind of things that we don't need. In fact, a believer knows the only gain that they have is wrapped up really in one verse of Scripture. Paul says what? For me, to live is Christ. If I'm alive today, on May 24th, I have Jesus as a believer. And if I die before May 25th, I really get Jesus. But Paul's picture is clear. I, my gain, what I get the most from, my greatest gain is Christ. I have no other gain that compares to that. So again, do these sound like things that only church leaders should not have? Or do these sound like things that we all need to be avoiding? Well, that's the have-not list. Now Paul's going to give us a, a have list. These are the things we need to look for. Look at verse 8. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. Again, just a brief look at each one of these, the first being hospitable. This means that you're kind to strangers. You are kind and nice to people that you've never met and you will never see again. Tom Rayner is the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. He wrote an article this week, Seven Things That Church Members Should Say to Visitors on Sunday Mornings. I love this. This is good. Here's the first four. Thank you for being here. Oops, sorry. Thank you for being here. Let me help you with that. Please take my seat. Here is my email address. Please let me know if I can help. That'd be wise on that one. You know, I mean, don't just, don't just give out your email. But the, the picture there is this. How can I serve you beyond this room? What's, what's a helpful way for me to serve you beyond this room? Look at the next three. Can I show you where you need to go? Let me introduce you to, and not just a pastor, Right? Look, we're averaging about 300 people now. Praise God for that. And on big Sundays, we have four or 500 people. You know what? I can't be friends with 300 people. It's just not going to work. So don't always come introduce them to me because they're not going to be able to be my friend most of the time. What we want to do is introduce them to each other. We want to be building friendships within the church. So there is a relationship beyond the pulpit the pulpit's one place in the life of the church. But where the gospel does great work is in the relationships even beyond the pulpit. 
So find ways to connect people in the life of the church. Introduce them to others. And then the last one, would you like to join us for lunch? I've been saying this for a few weeks. If you see a visitor, go invite them to go to lunch with you. You don't have to pay. You can go Dutch. It's all right. Hey, man, if I, if I invite somebody, we're going to the McDonald's value menu because that's where we go, you know. So it doesn't have to be something fancy and wonderful. But just find ways when we leave to continue to serve people, maybe even people who have been visiting. And you know what? That list works really good in this room. You know where else it works? Outside of this room. Take those things and tweak them for work. Tweak them for school. Tweak them for your neighborhood. Find ways to be nice to strangers this week. Maybe people you'll see again, or maybe people you'll never see again. Just be hospitable. Next, Paul says, loving what is good. He doesn't say like it. He says, love it. He doesn't love arguing. He doesn't love debating. He doesn't love fighting. He doesn't love greed. He doesn't love lust. He doesn't love arrogance. He loves what is good. He thinks about things that are good. I love how one Bible paraphrase puts Philippians 4, verse 8. You'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to to curse. Love what is good. Love what is good. Next, he says sensible. He isn't foolishly impulsive. He doesn't go to extremes with everything. He's not high and low with his emotions every 30 minutes of the day. When it comes to the things that are most important, he's level-headed. When it comes to the things that are most important, you can count on him to get the job done. He's sensible. He's also just. He takes all of the facts of a situation. He prays over those things and he thinks over those things. He doesn't react to things. He responds to things. He looks at what God's truth says. And then he goes and pursues people. He cares for people. He serves people. But he serves them in such a way that it's clear that God's opinion and his honor is first and most in his mind. He doesn't make his decisions on his experience he doesn't make his decisions on what he wants nor what the church wants, but he does what honors God first and most. Paul also says he must be devout. In other words, he understands what it means to be holy. He understands that God is holy, that God is other, that there's nobody else like God. And he understands that because God is other, he's supposed to do something with that. I love how Jerry Bridges puts it. We are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, approaching every relationship and every circumstance in reference to Him. In other words, the idea is this, that in every moment of his life, at the restaurant, at the ballpark, in the store, at home, at the table, no matter where it is, he's going, you know what, this is about the glory of God. This moment is still about God. Our choir sang a song about the greatness of the glory of God. Nowhere that can that be found more than sitting at the table with your family. The glory of God can be seen in your marriage. The glory of God can be seen in how you talk to your kids. The glory of God can be seen in your attitude during the week. The glory of God is supposed to be part of who we are. The holiness of God comes into our life. It functions in how we live. And we begin to say, oh yeah, I forgot this is actually not about me right now. This is about God. And then he says this, self-controlled. This is one of the best definitions I've ever heard on self-control. I love it. Stephen Cole writes, 
Self-control means overruling your emotions because of a higher goal. Because you want to please and honor God, you must go against your feelings of the moment. That's great. That's a good definition of self-control. That in the moment, the reason we have control is because, again, we are saying my desire to honor God is greater than my desire to get my way. And I'll be honest, that is really hard when it comes to the addictions of life. That's really hard when it comes to the spouse that is impossible to get along with. That's really hard when it comes to the rebellious child. It's really hard when it comes to the rude boss. It's really hard when it comes to the guy cutting you off in traffic. But it's still the answer. It's still the answer. The gospel is still the answer. Jesus Christ is still the answer. And honoring him is why we pursue control. And we do not give in to what we want. Again, do those sound like things that only church leaders are supposed to have? That's the stuff the only a pastor is supposed to do? I read this week and I agree with it. I always hate when people say stuff like, oh, the pastor's not supposed to do something like that. He's the pastor. I hate that sentence. You know why? Because the reality is, if it's something the pastor's not supposed to do, none of us are supposed to do it, you know? As Christians, that's the, the question we ask. Hey, does this honor God? Not it's okay for me to do it, but not the pastor. But does this honor God? Can I do this in a way that pleases Jesus? Paul saves the best, maybe for last. Look at verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. A church leader, an elder, a pastor, an overseer needs to be able to love God's word, study God's word, teach God's word, the good parts and the fun parts and the really hard parts. <laughs> what I said earlier is very, very true. The beautiful thing about preaching through a book of the Bible is all the sermons are planned through September as of right now. The hard thing about preaching through a book of the Bible is all the sermons are planned through the end of September right now. And when you get to the really hard verse, you don't get to get up the next Sunday and go, we're going to skip over to verse 22 now. No, you got to go ahead with it because it's right there. See, a pastor, an elder, an overseer has to love God's word and teach God's word and be faithful to God's word just as it is. My friend Jimmy Albright, who is one of the sweetest men on the planet, who pastors a church in Italy, once said this. He said, when I'm in the pulpit, I'm not there to be your friend. I love that. It's very true. Look, y'all know me. I'm, I'm a little bit funny, kind of funny, a little bit humorous. Every now and then my jokes get across here and there. And I'll, I'll laugh with you, enjoy life with you. But you know, when I get in the pulpit, my purpose is to say, this is who God is. And whether you like me about it or not is irrelevant. This is who God is. You know why? What you need most is God. And what I need most is God. What you need most is the truth of God's Word. And what I need most is the truth of God's Word. And so we just leave it where it is. It doesn't mean that the elder has to be fancy. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said this, there is not need of fancy words, but of strong minds. In other words, it's not about being uh, charismatic in the pulpit. It's not about being a, a charismatic personal leader outside of the pulpit. It's about making sure that you get God right when you talk about God. 
And David Guzik probably says the best of anything. If a man will not first stick to the word and will not then stick with the word of God, he is not qualified for leadership in God's church. So, again, let me just ask this question. Does that sound like something just for church leaders? I mean, really, are only church leaders supposed to be committed to the Bible? Only church leaders are supposed to be committed to God's word? Or is that something that all of us should be doing? In 1917, thousands of American soldiers sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to engage in World War I, or as it is often called, the Great War. Thousands of those soldiers, as they sailed across, many of them never to return, carried with them a Bible that they had been given. On the inside of that Bible was a preface that was written by President Woodrow Wilson. I want to read just a portion of that preface this morning. The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you will read it and find this out for yourselves. Read not little snatches here and there, but long passages that will really be the road to the heart of it. You will find it full of real men and women not only, but also of the things you have wondered about and been troubled about all your life as men have been always. And the more you read, the more it, and the more you read, the more it will become plain to you what things are worthwhile and what are not. What things make men happy, loyalty, right dealing, speaking the truth, readiness to give everything for what they think their duty. And most of all, the wish that they may have the approval of the Christ who gave everything for them. We are called to be the children of God. All of us, church members and church leaders. We are the Christians. We are not supposed to be flounders. We are supposed to be followers of Jesus. See, the difference between a flounder and a Christian is this. A flounder is all over the place. A flounder in the hard moments of life forgets that the gospel will prevail. A flounder is somebody who you never can figure out. Do they really believe Jesus is Jesus or not? But a Christian is someone who understands that they are not perfect. They understand that they don't have the answers for everything in life. But this they do understand, that they're going to walk by faith, not by sight. Because they know that by grace alone, through faith alone, they have found the approval of Christ alone. They have gained Christ. And friend, if you have the approval of Christ, if you have gained Christ, then you have gained everything. Everything. Let's pray.